Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. This week on the podcast, Citrix Netscaler vulnerabilities reportedly now under mass exploitation. So things are ramping up. Windows 11 version 23H2 is now available. And a cyber gang has been detected using social engineering tactics along with threats of actual physical violence to gain account credentials. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course, as always, is brought to you by my awesome sponsors. And that includes Networks Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, Happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Starting this week's episode with a quick update on the Citrix Netscaler vulnerabilities, which I've covered at length over the previous three episodes of the podcast. Well, recently researcher Kevin Beaumont, who I've mentioned many, many times on the podcast before, he's a very credible resource and an awesome guy, uh, but he reported this week that he found over 20,000 instances of exploited Citrix devices where session tokens have been stolen. He has said that his estimate was based on running a honeypot of servers that masquerade as vulnerable Netscaler devices to track opportunistic attacks on the internet. Beaumont then compared those results with other data, including some provided by NetFlow and the Shodan search engine. Now, there are others who are stating that there's only about 5,000 Netscaler devices found online that are vulnerable, but Kevin's data is suggesting 20,000. Ars Technica also reported that Grey Noise, a security company that also deploys honeypots, was showing exploits for CVE-2023-4966 coming from 135 different IP addresses, which is reportedly a 27-fold increase from just five days previously. And before I move away from this story for this week, the awesome Manuel Winkel gave a tip that you should not only just update your systems for CVE-2023-4966, you should also delete all active and persistent sessions using a series of commands. And those commands for anyone listening to the audio-only version of the podcast uh, can be found on the YouTube edition, which I share a link to the YouTube edition with every episode. If you just go to 5bytespodcast.com, Go to the episode guide for this episode, which is 306. You'll find the video embedded in there, or you can find the link to the video on 5bytespodcast.com for the episode. Or alternatively, if you go to 5bytespodcast.com for this episode, you can click on the link for Manuel's tweet, which I'll share too. And this makes sense because you want to actually flush out and clear out any persistent sessions from the previous bad vulnerable state that existed before you patched against this vulnerability. So it does make sense to me. The first customers for Microsoft's Copilot are now able to avail of the service as the first official launch of the service happened this week. 
if you hear that and get excited thinking it means your company can start using the service right away, hold your horses. The Verge reports that is only available for certain enterprise customers. Only Microsoft 365 E3 and E5 commercial subscribers are able to purchase Microsoft 365 Copilot as of this week. So that excludes some still on Office 365 plans and even Microsoft 365 Business Standard and Business Premium subscribers. Microsoft 365 monthly enterprise channel users won't be able to access Copilot features until December too. Parts of the Microsoft 365 Copilot experience are also still in preview even though this is officially launched, including some of the uh, Copilot for Excel features. Also, Mary Jo Foley reports that Copilot for OneNote is only available on Windows and the SharePoint Copilot preview only actually starts this month. As well as the fact a OneDrive Copilot isn't slated for preview until December. So it seems like this may just be a form of kind of a soft launch of the product. And speaking of Copilot, Microsoft says there's a new known issue that causes desktop icons to behave erratically on systems with multiple displays while using Windows Copilot's digital assistant. It only impacts Windows devices after installing KB5031455, which is an October Windows 11 22H2 preview cumulative update, which activates the AI assistant in preview. So just a heads up to those who are maybe kicking the tires a little bit and actually installing the preview of that cumulative update to, to try out the Copilot features, that it appears there's a known issue. And unfortunately, since it's the update that actually enables the preview feature. It's not a case of, well, just uninstall the update and then you can use Copilot and not have this kind of buggy behavior uh, because unfortunately it's the update that enables the preview that does lead to this buggy behavior. So there's really no good fix at this time. In the US this week, President Joe Biden signed an executive order that marks the first attempt to regulate generative AI systems. According to Ars Technica, the order includes testing mandates for advanced AI models to ensure they can't be used for creating weapons, suggestions for watermarking AI-generated media, and provisions addressing privacy and job displacement. The order ensures federal agencies must only enter into contracts with companies that comply with the government's newly outlined AI regulations. This approach utilizes the federal government's purchasing power to drive compliance with the newly set standards. And unfortunately, at least at the time of scripting and then recording this episode of the podcast, the full order and all the details are not available to view. Hopefully that changes in the coming days or weeks. But Ars Technica also reports that developers of AI systems that pose risks to national security, economic stability, or public health will be required to notify the federal government when training a model. They will also have to share safety tests results and other critical information with the U.S. government in accordance with the Defense Production Act before making them public. So obviously that's putting an onus on those developers to report it to the federal government. Of course, I mean, if they're doing that, it may be for nefarious purposes that they're developing that way. So they're not likely to report it. But I guess if they get caught and they were legally obligated to inform the government, then there could be serious consequences as a result. 
It's also reported the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the Department of Homeland Security will develop and implement standards for red team testing aimed at ensuring that AI systems are safe and secure before public release. The order also suggests, but doesn't mandate, the watermarking of photos, videos, and audio produced by AI. Ars Technica points out that there's no regulation mentioned regarding data use transparency, which is a major blind spot of the regulation, I guess. Um, also, from what I've read about it so far in different outlets, it doesn't seem to curtail just straight up theft of data by these AI companies who are just like skimming basically all resources and taking data created and shared by everyone without giving anything back. You know, they're monetizing other people's work. So it'll be interesting to see the full contents of this order because it does have serious implications. Unfortunately, I think its blind spots are likely because of lobbying by companies who are trying to ensure that they kind of rate, rise to the top and are able to maximize their profits from this AI revolution that we're facing into. And of course, if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that I covered the fact the U.S. government has essentially blocked some other countries, namely China, from acquiring certain components like chips that may be used for generative AI systems. So like I said last weekend on other episodes of the podcast, this AI stuff is really coming to the forefront and it is very interesting times that we're living in. Sticking with AI for this next one because it's all the rage right now. The Guardian News Group has accused Microsoft of damaging its journalistic reputation by publishing an AI-generated poll speculating on the cause of a woman's death next to an article published on Microsoft's start by the news org. Microsoft's news aggregation service published the automated poll next to a Guardian story about the death of Lily James, a 21-year-old water polo coach who was found dead with serious head injuries at a school in Sydney. The poll created by an AI program asked, quote, what do you think is the reason behind the woman's death? Readers were then asked to choose from three options, murder, accident, or suicide. The Guardian News Group has asked Microsoft not to apply experimental AI technology on or alongside Guardian journalism without the news publisher's approval and for Microsoft to always make it clear to users when AI tools are used to create additional units and features next to trusted news brands like The Guardian. For their part, a Microsoft spokesperson said, quote, we have deactivated Microsoft generated polls for all news articles and we are investigating the cause of the inappropriate content. A poll should not have appeared alongside an article of this nature, and we are taking steps to help prevent this kind of error from reoccurring in the future. Now, this is obviously terrible, and I feel so sorry for friends and family of that lady. This is awful. Uh, but I'd also be very interested if Microsoft would be willing to share what input and direction they gave to the AI for generating these polls. The cynic in me thinks they prompted the AI to generate a poll that would elicit engagement and reaction. And this poll has certainly received a lot of reaction, just not positive. But we've seen other instances of a more primitive AI in the past, which has been taught using content available online and uh, via interactions on social media. 
and ended up becoming corrupted and basically evil. So I wonder if this is another example of the risk of AI and the fact that it may play on some of the worst aspects and traits of humans. You know, maybe it actually created a poll that did reflect what it was prompted to create, something that would elicit a response. Windows 23H2 is now available. You can already find it for download from the Visual Studio Subscriptions download page or MSDN in old speak. And I've covered the features in this update pretty extensively on the podcast already on previous episode. That was episode 301. But I'll try to maybe skim over and just summarize some of the highlights for those who have not heard the previous episodes and just like couldn't be ours to go back and listen to them. Uh, so there are 150 new features, including new AI-powered versions of Paint, ClipChamp, Snipping Tool, and of course the new Microsoft Copilot that I've already talked about during this episode. There is an enhanced volume mixer also for more granular audio controls on a per-application basis. Uh, for Paint within the operating system, it's finally getting a background removal tool and a similar layers feature to something like Photoshop or Paint.net. ClipChamp now uses artificial intelligence to automatically create videos based on the photos and videos that you add to the program. The Never Combined Taskbar feature arrives to Windows 11 that allows you to display all running instances of an application in the taskbar. So rather than having one application icon in the taskbar that's really for maybe 10 or 20 different instances of that application running, uh, you can have one each for every instance that's running, basically bringing it back to the way that Windows used to stack or arrange those application icons in the taskbar. Also available is the Windows Passkey Manager, which again, go back to the older episodes, I talked about it quite extensively and what that means. It is a pretty cool feature and it is something that's being supported by various different Microsoft products already. Uh, there's already an auto saving feature that's been added to Notepad. I noticed this myself on my Windows 11 before I've even updated to 23H2. It seems to have made its way onto my machine, uh, which is really, really cool. It will auto save Notepad. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, there's a Windows backup tool, which I've also talked about, and some people are not very happy about it because it comes in the OS and not every enterprise wants to expose that backup tool. The OS will also have warnings for unsafe password copy and paste actions, support for more compressed file formats, including .7z, .rar, .gz, .tar, .bz2, and .tgz. So if you've used something like WinRAR or 7-Zip in the past, you don't necessarily have to continue using those. You can use the ability to extract using the built-in explore functionality going forward if you so choose of course 7-zip can handle many many different formats that the windows os still can't this update also ensures that labels and sliding animations appear when switching between desktops and task view and there's much much more like i stated there's 150 new features that's just a summary of some of them and I'll share a link to an article by bleepcomputer.com that covers more of the features with this episode, which again is episode 306. Two new 16V CPU offerings are now generally available in Windows 365. 
One, which provides 64 gigs of memory and 512 gigs of storage along with the 16V CPU, and the other with 64 gigs of memory again, but one terabytes of storage. Now it's generally available, however, when you go to the pricing and plans available for Windows 365, it does not appear there as an option. Uh, the information on the site suggests that you need to contact your Microsoft account team or Microsoft partner to avail of this. And because of that, it looks like there's no publicly available list price for this either. So it'd be very interesting to see what that is because that's going to now be presumably the most expensive spec Windows 365 cloud PC available. Gray Noise, who I referenced earlier in this episode of the podcast when talking about the Citrix vulnerabilities being exploited, well, they show that there are 241 unique IP addresses observed currently exploiting the Confluence vulnerability, which is CVE-2023-22515 that I covered previously on the podcast and which was recently highlighted by the US CISA as a major threat that required attention from administrators. Andrew Morris also reported on Twitter that the vast majority of the exploits are going through Tor, similar to the first wave of Log4j or Log4Shell that he says was two years ago, which, oh my God, it's crazy. That's already been two years. Where's time going? Andrew states that if you haven't patched, you've probably already been popped. BleepyComputer.com reports that a bad actor being dubbed Prolific Puma has been providing link shortening services that includes links featuring US top level domains to cyber criminals to help with the delivery of phishing, scams, and malware. Bleepy Computer suggests that they've been operating for at least four years but keeping a sufficiently low profile in order to operate undetected and they've amassed over 75,000 unique domains in that time. Security researchers from Infoblocks reported that some of the short links from Prolific Puma led directly to the final destination, but others pointed to multiple redirects or even other shortened links before getting to a landing page. Infoblox says that there were also cases where accessing the short link took the user to a CAPTCHA challenge, likely to protect from automated scans. And because of this inconsistency in what prolific Puma's short links loaded next, the researchers believe that multiple actors are actually using the service. The delivery method for these links also varies and includes social media and advertisements, but evidence points to text messages as the main channel. So it certainly seems like this prolific Puma group were quite clever in keeping themselves under the radar this long. Microsoft researchers recently published details of a cyber gang using an unorthodox approach in their campaigns. They do not launch attacks which infiltrate a corporate network and encrypt the data offering to sell a decryption for a ransom. No, Microsoft reports in this instance, the group uses social engineering together with good old fashioned threats of physical violence. So essentially terror to get what they are after. You see, they use social engineering to find their targets and also use some of their personal data such as home address and family names followed by threats to get these targets to provide their credentials. Ars Technica reports that they then threaten to expose data publicly in order to gain a ransom. So it seems a less technical means of exploitation 
but based on some of the text message exchange shared in the article, it is quite intimidating, these messages, and you obviously you read it, and they're kind of quick succession text messages that are threatening. You know, if you're receiving these, you're not thinking, oh, this is like a, a computer-generated message or some sort of bot scam. This is someone who's actually messaging me these threats. So I bet it is intimidating and likely effective. Google Chrome will now upgrade insecure HTTP requests to HTTPS requests for 100% of users. This feature, which is now available in the stable channel, is called HTTPS Upgrades and will secure old links that utilize the HTTP protocol by automatically attempting to first connect to the URL over the encrypted HTTPS protocol. Of course, Chrome is not the first browser to offer this feature, but since it's the most widely used browser, this is obviously a welcome addition for just general security purposes. BeepyComputer.com reported on multiple different NuGet packages which are using NuGet's MS build integration for code execution of malicious code. The technique being used was first introduced by a security researcher in 2019 to illustrate how the MS build process can be abused to run code when NuGet packages are installed. However, this is the first documented case of threat actors actually leveraging this feature in malicious NuGet packages. The malicious packages have been removed at this time, but the same threat actors attempted to upload new packages shortly after the removal, which may show some persistence by them in order to get more malicious packages uploaded. So this is an interesting highlight, I guess, of one of the concerns around package manager tools, which are obviously becoming more mainstream for Windows applications. I know I did a session around application updates at a user group a few months ago, and I was speculating that most organizations that I've worked in, even if they wanted to use maybe the engine or the mechanism for updating applications that a package manager provides, they probably would not be consuming applications from those package managers' public repositories because it's just inherently insecure, in my opinion. And while this is kind of more of a limited scope, I would say, because general consumer applications would not be getting installed via this repository or this system, it does highlight legitimate concerns with the consumer products for Windows applications, in my opinion. Heads up to network admins out there as F5 is warning big IP admins that devices are being breached by skilled hackers exploiting two recently disclosed vulnerabilities to erase signs of their access and achieve stealthy code execution. The vulnerabilities in question are listed as CVE-2023-46747, which is a critical vulnerability that gets a 9.8 out of 10. And this is an authentication bypass flaw, allowing an attacker to access the configuration utility and perform arbitrary code execution. Also listed was CVE-2023-46748, which again is a high severity vulnerability, getting an 8.8 out of 10 for severity. And this is a SQL injection flaw, allowing authenticated attackers with network access to the configuration utility to again exit arbitrary system commands this time. F5 has observed threat actors using the two flaws in combination. So even just applying a mitigation for one of these vulnerabilities could be enough to stop most attacks. 
Attackers have been reported to infiltrate and then clean up any evidence of their breach. Big IP endpoints that haven't been patched until now should be treated as compromised, and out of an abundance of caution, admins of exposed Big IP devices should proceed straight to the cleanup and restoration phase because, again, attackers who do breach are able to basically clean up after themselves so they leave no trace. So you should assume you've been compromised and follow the guidance by F5 to clean up and restore. AWS have announced multi-session support for Amazon AppStream 2 fleets powered by Windows Server. This new feature enables IT admins to host multiple end-user sessions on a single AppStream 2 instance, helping to make better use of instance resources. To set up AppStream 2 multi-session instances, you simply create an AppStream 2 always-on or on-demand fleet with multi-session capability by specifying the cloud instance type, operating system image, and number of user sessions on a single instance. Multi-session streaming instances are charged hourly. So nice that multi-session support is finally available in AppStream 2 fleets. So wrapping up the news this time, and it's not really a news item. I had a question from a listener. Now, I did not ask for permission to name them on the episode, so I will err on the side of caution and not say who it's from. But this person was interested to hear if anyone listening has had luck with using Citrix DAS to deploy the VDA to cloud management endpoints. So that's a feature I think I covered on the podcast a long time ago when it was first released. I personally have not actually used it, on paper, it sounds like it should be pretty valuable and the ability to have it automatically update would save a lot of time. But I personally have not used it, so I wasn't able to provide any of my own thoughts or insight on that. And this person would like to hear anyone else's take and on their experience from using the feature or service. So if you have used it, you now feel free to put a comment on the YouTube edition of this episode. Or alternatively, you can reach out to me and I'd be happy to share your feedback. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. First up this week, Fletcher Kelly shared a curated list of links or starter points for those interested or perhaps beginning to use Azure VMware solutions. So it's a series of links with great reference information for those starting that journey. And to promote a little bit of my own work, this week I published a blog post on Numescent.com talking about application management and some of the advantages of taking a containerization approach. Uh, for example, you know, something that I promoted on Twitter and LinkedIn, just a single segment of the blog post. You know, in it, I don't mention Generation Z by name. Uh, but those entering the workforce scoff at the convoluted process and delays for getting Windows applications they need when all they ever have known in their lives is search, click install, and done. And they've got their applications that they need on their personal devices. They just can't comprehend when they go into a professional setting that suddenly this highly skilled, large enterprise IT team can't get them the applications they need like quickly and on demand. So I kind of dissect that a little bit more and get into like containers and some of the benefits of deploying and managing application containers. 
Finally, to wrap up this week's episode, you may recall if you've listened to the last five episodes of the podcast, I launched a giveaway to celebrate or mark the 300th episode of this podcast, where I was giving away one of the new Stream Deck Plus appliances to one winner selected from the entries for the competition. Well, entries closed on October 31st, and I recorded this episode on November 1st and completed the draw. And I'll share a video to that and a link to that video with this episode again, which is episode 306. But the winner was drawn at random. And that winner is Jason Lee. So congratulations, Jason. By the time this episode has been published, I have already reached out to you to get your address to arrange shipping the prize to you. And that's about it for this episode. For everyone going to E2EVC this week in Rome, Have a blast, and as always, thank you all so much for listening, and I'll catch you next week.